This past week, I was reading an article on the internet about a Persian king who lived and reigned during a time of great wealth and prosperity in the land. And despite his great privileges, despite the splendor that he grew up in, he decided that he wanted to leave it all behind. And he wanted to see how the other half lived. And so what he did was he dressed himself in common clothes and he decided, I'm going to find the poorest person in the land and I'm going to befriend them. He didn't have to travel very far because the poorest person in the land was actually somebody who worked in his palace. And all day this man, his job was to light little fires which he put in small containers and he distributed them around the palace to keep other people warm. And finding out where this man worked, the king descended a set of cold stony steps down into his cellar and he found this man working in a pile of ashes. Very quickly he pulled up a seat and he sat down and started to chat to this man After a period of time, the man produced some bread and some water, and they had some lunch together. And every single day, it was the same. The king would come, and he would speak to this poor man, and very quickly, they formed a close friendship. One evening, upon returning to the palace, he started to feel guilty because they'd become friends, and he was deceiving his friend. I can't keep it up, he said. I need to tell this man who I really am. And so the next day, he went to this man. They were chatting away. And he said to him, you think that I'm poor, but I'm not. I'm your king, and I can give you whatever you want. And the king, of course, expected the usual response. Well, I want riches. I want great possessions. But the man just stood there in utter amazement and said nothing. After a period of time, the king said to him, well, do you not understand what I said? I'm the king. I can make you rich. We're friends. I can give you whatever you want. What do you desire? And the man simply replied by saying, no, I understood what you said. But what I can't understand is this. How you would leave your palace, leave your possessions, your position, your splendor, your glory. And how you would come and speak with me. How you would eat my steel bread. How you would care for me. You can give your riches to somebody else because you've given me something greater. You've given me your friendship. And all I ask in return is that you never withdraw that friendship from me. Now you never can tell when you read something on the internet whether it's 100% factual. But as I read this story, it immediately reminded me of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, in some ways, Christ has done the exact same thing for sinful man. Because Christ is king and he's Lord over all. And he would leave the eternal riches and glory of heaven. He would come to this earth that he might give man eternal life. And that he might give man his friendship. And really that's the message that we read here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Because look what it says in verse 9. It says, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. And this morning it's that verse that I want to draw our attention. So I want to focus upon verse 9. And I want to do that by speaking upon the subject, mankind's eternal riches through Christ's poverty. Mankind's eternal riches through Christ's poverty. And I have three very simple thoughts that come from this verse this morning. I want you to see with me, firstly, his unlimited possessions. Look at how verse 9 begins. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... 
And whenever you and I hear that word rich, very often our minds automatically begin to think of somebody who has great wealth, who has great possessions. You see, that's how the world today defines riches. You take the name Elon Musk this morning, he's the richest man in the world. He owns Tesla, he owns SpaceX, he's recently bought Twitter, and he has a net value, a net worth of $222 billion. A man who's been making a lot of money this time of year is Jeff Bezos, the owner of Amazon. $171 billion. And society look at men like this, and they would say that they're insanely rich, and they're right. And yet I want to say to you this morning that the material wealth here, this material possessions, their riches, it pales into insignificance when compared with the riches that the Lord Jesus Christ possesses. And that's the point that Paul is trying to get across here in verse 9. He's not talking about material wealth, material riches. He's speaking here about being spiritually rich. We think about Christ in that way as being rich. There are several things I want you to see with me. He's rich in his person. That's the first thing. Because in verse 9 we read the words, He was rich. And in using the word was here, Paul's making reference to a time prior to Christ coming into the world. And in just these three words we have here the eternality and the pre-existent nature of Christ. In other words, there's never been a time in which Christ did not exist. And you know what? That is something that we need to understand, it's something we need to defend. So many people out there today, and they seek to deny the eternality of Christ, and they'll point to the manger, they'll point to the birth in Bethlehem to Mary and Joseph, and they'll say, well, no, it proves here he had a beginning. He only became the Son of God at this point. And yet I say this reverently to you this morning, if Christ is not eternal, then Christ cannot be God. And what does that mean this morning for you and I who are saved? It means that if Christ is not God, he cannot be our sin bearer. If he's not our sin bearer, then we're living a lie. We're still in our sin. Our sins haven't been pardoned. We're still condemned by that sin. And yet we can be certain this morning that he is eternal. And why can we be certain? Because God's word tells us. Think this morning of what it says in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. One of the many prophecies that speak about Christ coming into the world. He was going to be born in Bethlehem. And in Micah 5 and verse 2 we read the words, But thou Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, and here you have it, from everlasting. You go to John's Gospel, John chapter 1 and verse 1. Familiar words. In the beginning was the Word, that's Christ. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Christ was there right from the very beginning. He's eternal. You have Christ's own words, John chapter 17 and verse 5. He says, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. So many verses in God's word that teach the eternality of Christ. He's rich in his person, but he's also rich in his possessions. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16. It says, For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, 
All things were created by him and for him. Christ is the creator and the sustainer of the universe. And so every star, every planet, every galaxy belongs to Christ. He created them all. You think of the riches of this world that people are seeking after. The gold, the silver, the precious jewels, whatever you want to name this morning. They belong to the Lord. Haggai's testimony there through the words of the Lord in Haggai chapter 2 and verse 8. He puts it this way. He says the silver is mine and the gold is mine. Rich in his person. Rich in his possessions. But he's also rich in his position as well. You listen to what, how Christ is described in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 15. He's the blessed. He's the only potentate. The king of kings and lord of lords. And that word potentate there, it means one who is mighty. It's the mighty one. And you take that meaning and you apply it to the context in which we find this verse written. And it's speaking about Christ's position as being governor of the world. You look down throughout history and how many men have tried to seek that for themselves. They've seek, sought to be governor of the world. But Christ is the only true potentate. He's the only true potentate for the simple reason that men today, they gain their authority to govern from the Lord. But Christ, who is God, he is self-governing. He receives authority to govern from himself. He's the only potentate. Rich in his person, his possessions, his position, but very quickly also in his power. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty in high. When you uphold something, you maintain it. That's what it means. He maintains all things. He providentially maintains and sustains everything. Every creature on this earth is preserved by Christ. Christ gives everything necessary for life. He rules. He governs. He orders all things in accordance with his divine will. And nothing will or nothing can happen outside of the Lord's control. And do you know what? This morning that is great encouragement for the child of God. No matter your current situation, your current circumstance, maybe you're going through some trial or some difficulty this morning, or maybe you'll go through one in the future. We all face trials in life. And yet you can be encouraged today. When you understand that Christ is in control of it all. He has a purpose for everything. And everything that happens is for his good and it's for his glory. Because God is good by his very nature. With his unlimited possessions this morning, he was rich. But the second thing I want you to see with me then is his unparalleled poverty. You look again at 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9. For we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. And again, how often do we hear in the news about some rich person and they've made a generous donation to help those out who are less fortunate than themselves and they are certainly to be commended for their generosity. But let me ask you this. How often do you ever read in those articles of a rich person ever making themselves poor in the process? 
They often give what they feel comfortable giving. They give an amount that won't cause them to lose out or to be worse off financially. But Paul tells us that Christ became poor. And he didn't become poor out of necessity. It wasn't essential for him to become poor. But no, his becoming poor was completely voluntary. Why did he do that? He did it because of the sins of mankind. Believer, never forget this morning what you've been saved from. If we're not for Christ, you and I would be on the road to an eternity in hell. And I say that this morning because at times I think we forget. We hear the cross preached week after week. And of course that is what we are to do. We're to preach Christ crucified. But it can become so familiar to us. We maybe don't think about it as we ought to. It doesn't affect us like it used to. And if we fail to fully appreciate that. The grace of God that has been given to us in Christ Jesus. Never forget what you've been saved from. Absolutely nothing that we could have brought to God to permit entry into heaven. Nothing we could have done to earn favor with him. Nothing that could ever move God to pity us. See, how does the Bible describe sinful man this morning? Sinful man is one that is devoid of any personal righteousness. Familiar words in Isaiah 64 verse 6. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. That's how we are. Ephesians 2 and verse 1, we're dead in trespasses and sins. We're totally depraved. Total inability. Paul's words in Romans 5 and 8, we're without strength. We are also unable to love God. 1 John 4 and 19, we love him because he first loved us. Walking in darkness. Under the power of sin. Under the power of Satan. And the thing is, this morning, we were happy in our sin. We loved our sin. We didn't want to part with that sin. And if it were not for the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in giving us a new heart, we never would have sought out Christ. As believers, then, may we never be seen to be looking down at other people who are still in their sin, who are not saved. May we never think in our minds or get it into our minds that we are much better than they are because we are not. I think what Paul says to the church at Corinth gives a list of many sins and then he says, and such were some of you. And that needs to be our attitude as believers as we seek to present the gospel to the world and such were some of you. They're souls that need to be saved. Only way to change our spiritual poverty was for Christ to become poor. How did Christ become poor? Well, he became poor in his humanity. The one who was eternally unincarnate, he became incarnate. Born in the womb of the Virgin Mary, God manifest in the flesh. That's what it means by the incarnation. God made flesh. Have you ever stopped to think about the gravity of the incarnation? You consider the riches we've just spoken about. Christ created all things. He's all power. He's all authority and majesty and honor. And here he is in the arms of the Virgin Mary. In weakness. In absolute frailty. Just like any child, he needed to be fed and protected and kept warm. This was God. 
And Charles Spurgeon puts it in a nice way. Describing the incarnation, he says it is the infinite becoming the infant. It's the infinite becoming the infant. And whenever we think about the incarnation, as we often do this time of year, and we ought to think about it every day, it's important to point out that Christ did not cease to be God. He didn't lose his divine perfections, his divine attributes. And again, I say that because there are those who will tell you that he did. He took upon himself a human nature and he ceased from being God. But do you look through his ministry? He raised the dead, healed the blind, calmed storms. They're all supernatural acts. They're all acts of God. Is he God or Christ here? He did not set aside these divine attributes. They were simply hidden from man's view. Poor in his humanity, but also poor in his humiliation. And I want you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Just over a few pages. Philippians chapter 2, please. It's one of the most wonderful chapters in the whole of the Bible. Philippians chapter 2. We have his humiliation and we have his exaltation. But we're going to read just verses 6 and 7 together. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. He made himself of no reputation. See, Christ, by all appearances, he was just like any other man. Isaiah 53 tells us there's no beauty that we should desire him. But he also took upon himself the form of a servant. And you think of those words, took upon. Again, we're brought to see the voluntary nature of Christ here. He wasn't forced. He wasn't obliged to do this. He became a servant. He literally became a slave. And in coming to this earth, Christ willingly submitted to die a shameful death on the cross in order to redeem sinful man. And here we have it in verse 8. That's really just the summary of it. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Christ became poor in his humanity, his humiliation, but also in his habitation. Because Christ's birth was one that was marked by abject poverty. We read of how there was no room in the inn for Mary and Joseph. Christ born in a stable, surrounded by the animals, placed in a manger, in a feeding trough, No grand announcements of his birth. No big celebrations. As a boy, he grew up in a town that was unknown, unimportant Nazareth. You think what Nathaniel said to Philip, John chapter 1 and verse 46. Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? That was where Christ lived. When he commenced his public ministry, we read that he never had a house of his own. The foxes have holes. The birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man have nowhere to lay his head. See, Christ depended upon his followers to support him. In Luke chapter 8 and verse 3, we're told that the women ministered to him when Christ died, when he was buried. He was buried in the tomb of another man, Joseph of Arimathea. It was Nicodemus, that religious ruler who met Christ in John chapter 3, who would come with the spices, who would come with the burial clothing for Christ. Again, we ask, why did Christ do it? 
He did it to satisfy God's divine justice. He did it to redeem and to reconcile sinful man to God. And he did it in order to be able to help or to succor those who are tempted. Unparalleled poverty also in his R. In John's Gospel, we have, I think it's seven references to the R. And it's speaking there really about the time of Christ's death. The R has not come. And he says the R is come. And we often think about Christ's death on the cross. How often do we think about the events that led up to that death? We think about them at Easter, of course. Maybe they're preached upon a few times a year. But how often do we think about those events? You think of Christ this morning as he lay prostrate in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying unto the Father, covered in a bloody sweat. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And why does he do it? He doesn't do it because he's looking a way out. Because he's on to say, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. But no, Christ did it because having a perfect knowledge, he knew everything that was before him. He knew he must become the object of God's wrath. He knew that he must suffer immense agony. He knew he was going to be arrested, beaten, ridiculed, mocked, scorned. Have you ever thought this morning about that event when they blindfold Christ and they slap him across the face and they say, prophesy, which one of us hit you? You see, when they slapped him across the face, it's not how we think about it conventionally with an open palm. No, they hit him with a closed fist. As they clenched their fist and as they punched Christ repeatedly in the face as hard as they could, can you imagine this morning what his face must have been like after that? Isaiah tells us that his visage was more marred than any man. Anybody interested in the sport of boxing, you will know or you'll have seen a boxer's face after a tough fight. Eyes, mouth, nose, swollen and bloodied. How often do we ever really picture Christ in that way? And that's not the end of it, because even after that, what did he do? He went to the cross. Hung on that cross. Everybody forsook him. Even his father forsook him for a time. And why did his father forsake him? In order that you and I, believer, might never be forsaken by God. The most remarkable thing is that he was silent throughout it all. He was silent in order that you and I might never have to be silent when the accusations come. When the devil accuses you, when men accuse you, when other Christians accuse you, what can you say? You can say, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. You see, Christ has dealt with every single one of our sins, past, present, and future. They're all covered under the blood. And our sins no longer condemn us. Because Christ's punishment means today, believer, our eternal joy. His unlimited possessions, his unparalleled poverty. But very quickly then we have his unswerving purpose. Because what was Christ's purpose? Well, we read about it at the end of verse 9. That ye through his poverty might be rich. And again, it's not rich financially. It's not any health or wealth gospel that many people like to preach today. If you have enough faith, you're going to be wealthy. You're not going to be sick. Because if you believe it, then you're going to receive it. And if you don't get what your heart desires, it's your fault because you didn't have enough faith. 
A few things annoy me more than that kind of reckless preaching. All it does is leave people in bondage. Because Paul here, he's speaking about being spiritually rich. It's to know forgiveness of sin. It's to have peace with God. It is to have eternal life in heaven. You listen to how Peter describes that very thing. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4, he calls it an inheritance, incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. He goes on in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature. Or you have Paul's words in Romans 8 and 17. We're heirs of God. We're joint heirs with Christ. See, every believer today, you have a place in heaven reserved for you. But while you're on this earth, you will be preserved until you get to heaven. And we often tell people, don't we, that salvation is free. And it is free on man's part, but it costs God a lot. It costs God the death of his only beloved son. But also cost Christ. Christ willingly gave his life in order that we might be spiritually rich because without Christ we would have remained spiritually poor. And as believers today that truth really ought to motivate us. As we think this morning of how Christ has given everything for us. Should you and I as believers not be motivated to give everything for him and for others who are in need? 2 Corinthians 5 and 15 tells us that he died for all. That they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves. So we're not to live unto ourselves, but we're to live unto him who died for them and rose again. We're to live unto Christ. That is our purpose in life. And it is something that every believer today ought to know. So Paul's saying to those in Corinth here, Look at how verse 9 begins. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ye know it. And to know isn't just simply to have all the facts. It's to know by experience. You've experienced what Christ has done in your life. You've experienced it personally. You know it. It's personal to you. And it's something that as a believer you're continually experiencing. And therefore because we know it. Because we're experiencing it, we should be willing to be sacrificial to others who are in need. You might have noticed at the beginning of chapter 8, he's speaking about the Macedonians. And the Macedonian people had very little, they were poor. But in verse 4, it tells us they still wanted to give what they had. And why did they want to give? Because they knew that Christ had given all for them. And throughout his life, Paul had one desire. And he records that desire in Philippians 3 verse 10. It's that I might know him. The question I want to leave with you all this morning is that question. Do you know Christ? Not have you heard of Christ? Not do you know some facts about Christ or do you have a head knowledge of Christ? But do you know Christ this morning personally? Is he your savior? Have you asked him into your heart? Is he the light of the world for you today? Because to possess the riches of this world and to know not Christ is to be the poorest person in the world. 
reading something recently, and I'll finish with this. Recently found a skeleton of a gold prospector in the Panamint Mountains of Death Valley. And alongside that skeleton, there were two things. There was a bag of gold, and there was a little note. And on that note, there were just three words, I died rich. Experts would take that gold away. They would examine it for its purity, its authenticity. It wasn't gold at all. It was iron pyrite. Fool's gold. That man died poor. How many people today are like that man? Relying on the riches, wanting to die rich, thinking that they can buy their way to heaven. If I give enough money, I'll be good enough for heaven. And if that's you today, I want to tell you in love to your soul, it's nothing but fool's gold. It will never get you into heaven. To rely upon the riches of the world will only bring you to an eternity in hell. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his soul? But with Christ you can possess true and lasting wealth. It's forgiveness of sin. It's an eternal home in heaven. And how can you have it today? It's by repenting of your sin. It's by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's by believing in him with all your heart. And I know this time of year we get so excited about opening the gifts. And I'm excited as well. But before you open your gifts tomorrow, why not today come and accept the greatest gift that you will ever receive? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's eternal life. It's forgiveness of sin. It's an eternal home in heaven with the Lord, which is far better. May God write that word upon your hearts today. And may it have challenged you, may it have encouraged you. If you're not saved, may it have made you think about your own need. You need Christ today. And he alone is able to meet your need. I want to close today by singing a hymn with you. It's hymn 91. It's on page 213. Tell me the story of Jesus, write on my heart every word. Tell me the story most precious, sweeter than ever was heard. Tell how the angels in chorus sang as they welcomed his birth. Glory to God in the highest, peace and good tidings on earth. I must stand again after the